The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I was thinking earlier this week about what to speak about. And I uh, had a little um, exchange with someone downtown that uh, caused me to decide on speaking on this theme of happiness today. It's a very simple, ordinary story. I was uh, just had my annual eye exam in downtown San Francisco and just walking back along Mission Street. Decided I'd call a friend and uh, see if he happened to be free on short notice to get together. I stopped into that uh, beautiful park, Yerba Buena Center Park. Really nice little park. And just stepped in to get a little quiet for my phone call. Uh, my friend wasn't, wasn't home, so I just left a message. And I saw all the people enjoying the beautiful day, sitting on the grass. And then sp- stepped back toward Mission Street. And someone spoke to me, a stranger, and said, you look so happy, you must have a lot of money in the bank. (laughs) 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 Oh, well, no, actually, I just have the Dharma. (laughs) Uh, It was a beautiful reflection. In effect, he held up a mirror for me to see my own happiness in that moment. And there was absolutely nothing special going on. I was just present, present to see other people being happy in the park, not caught up around being disappointed that my friend didn't answer his phone, just present. So we open them more and more of these moments of happiness in our lives, whether or not we have a lot of money in the bank. So... This is a path of happiness. As Analia, the Buddhist monk and scholar, says, this is a path of happiness. Lots of bumps along the road, but it's a path that leads leads to a greater happiness. So today I'll frame the talk on happiness in terms of three kinds of happiness. And it's important, I think, to reflect on happiness, appreciate the happiness that comes forward in our practice, because at times it can seem like there's so much emphasis on dukkha, on reliability of human experience, the emphasis on suffering. So good to also reflect and appreciate the happiness and benefits of practice that come forward. It's always an inspiration for me in practice that the Buddha, Buddha who lived almost 2,600 years ago, a human being who fully realized the truth, that the Buddha was known as the happy one. He was known as the happy one, even though he could see the whole mass of suffering of the entire world. And it said he could see not only the suffering of the whole world present in his life, but the suffering of the past, the suffering of the future. So the Buddha could hold this all with a heart of infinite compassion, with a heart of perfect wisdom, with a heart of equanimity, holding it in balance. And he was still known as the happy one. He'd realized an unconditional happiness not dependent on any condition of the world. All of us in our practice, this practice of present awareness, of 
mindfulness, allows us to open to more happiness in our lives just with the ordinary experiences of life. Just perhaps going outside, looks like the sky is blue now, the clouds have, have cleared, just happiness of seeing the blue sky. To be present more fully for it, happiness to be fully present when we're in nature, when we're present with friends. We're kind of more fully in our direct body experience with this practice of present awareness. So we can enjoy those ordinary moments of life more fully, not so caught up in thinking about the past or thinking about the future. And then with our practice, we begin to open to a deeper happiness as we accept the present moment as it is, kind of no longer being in contention with our present experience. Have a sense of peace for the present experience just as it is. So we begin to open to a sense of peace, contentment, calm, perhaps in the midst of being sick. Perhaps even when we read the newspaper and read about all the politics of the world, of our country, we begin to find a peace that isn't shaken so much by the external conditions of the world or by our own individual circumstances of relationships or finances or health. That's the direction of our practice. And as we open up to understanding the present moment, present experience, present moment experience can't be any different than it is. Our hearts also open up. It's a beautiful benefit of practice. Our hearts open to kindness and compassion, to supportive joy. It's a very natural opening of the heart because we're more fully present, more kind to ourselves, more kind to others. Our hearts are responsive to see the suffering of others and the heart of compassion that wishes the suffering to end and to recognize and feel the joy of others and celebrate that joy, wish it to continue. It's like a very responsive quality of heart that we're cultivating with the practice. I think of someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama where this is manifested so so beautifully that uh, if he's in a room full of people, maybe a big hall, offering a uh, talk, answering questions, and someone is talking about their experience of suffering, you can see that His Holiness the Dalai Lama feels compassion, is right there to feel the suffering and wishing it to end. And finishing that conversation, His Holiness the Dalai Lama might turn towards seeing a laughing child, smiling child, and immediately feel a sense of joy, mudita, supportive joy. So this is the same quality that opens up in our, in our own hearts, in our own practice. And our practice is leading in this direction toward an unconditional happiness that uh, could be called a Buddha nature. In the practice of insight meditation, Buddha nature can be understood as the seed of awakening, the potentiality of awakening within every being that the Buddha acknowledged. Every being has this potentiality to awaken. So that's the overall direction of our practice. 
That may not always seem like this is a path of happiness, right? That there is loss, there's loss, there's pain in life. It's inevitable, as, as the Buddha acknowledged. And with our practice, we're, we're not called upon to just turn toward happiness. We're also called upon to be present for whatever is in awareness. So we might experience sadness or fear or anger. And the practice calls for us to be fully present for that experience. So there's kind of uh, bumps along the way, but all of everything that, that is in our practice is supporting the waking up, supporting the opening of the heart, and supporting our practice and leading to a greater happiness. It's expressed by Bishop Desmond Tutu, We are meant to live in joy. This does not mean that life will be easy or painless. It means that we can turn our faces to the wind and accept that this is a storm that we must pass through. So we turn toward the wind, but it leads in the direction of a greater peace and joy, contentment, happiness. I'll highlight the uh, three kinds of happiness and then talk a little bit more in detail about these. And uh, I'm drawing from the Buddha's discourse from Samyutta Nikaya 36.31 in which uh, the Buddha speaks about the three kinds of happiness, particularly in the context of deep concentration practice. And also speaking from um, teachings from teacher Philip Moffat, one of my teachers, many of you may know Philip, who uh, has offered teachings on three kinds of happiness. So the first kind of happiness is happiness based on, you could say, conditions of the world, ordinary happiness. Uh, Times when our health feels relatively good. Maybe um, times when we feel financially secure. Maybe it's more momentary kinds of ordinary happiness of just enjoying a good meal or having a, having a cup of tea. Or Before I got here this morning, I went to Pete's Coffee in Redwood City and had my espresso. That's, that's my simple pleasure. And the Buddha didn't say these simple, ordinary pleasures of the world are to be rejected. Right? Uh, he pointed out that they're ultimately not satisfactory, they're not reliable because they're just temporary. So he didn't say they're to be rejected. In effect, he was teaching a middle way of neither extreme asceticism nor extreme indulgence. But he was pointing toward uh, a deeper happiness. So the second kind of happiness is based on understanding. Happiness based on understanding, or you could say the attitude of the mind. It accepts the present experience as it is, perhaps knowing that in the next moment there may be an appropriate action taken to address a harm or an injustice, but the very present moment can't be different than it is. We begin to find a balance, balance and acceptance right in the middle of things. And this is what the, one of the great benefits of practice. We begin to find a way to be able to kind of be at peace when our body's in discomfort or when we're not feeling well. 
we don't get swung around so much by the vicissitudes of life when we have relationship problems. And we don't make our happiness so dependent on specific outcomes. So we begin to open to, um, this is a challenge for many folks right now, is to be happy even in the midst of the difficult political situation in our country. Um, it can be very easy to our, attach our happiness to specific, maybe political outcomes we're looking for doesn't mean that we still don't work hard for what we believe in, that we don't speak up and take action. But we can open to a peace and acceptance of the present circumstances and actually find a greater strength and clarity to take the actions that we think are appropriate. And then there's a happiness entirely independent of any conditions of the world. The happiness of the Buddha. And this is often expressed as the heart freed from all confusion. The heart freed from all confusion. Perfect clarity, perfect wisdom, and all the beautiful qualities of the heart naturally opening up. Naturally opening up. And I like to emphasize, this isn't so far away. We all have moments of this kind of happiness when we're neither coming nor going, neither leaning into the past, leaning into the future, hanging on to the past, just fully present in any moment. We do experience these moments of great peace. So, speak a little bit too about uh, foundational supports, some foundational supports for our practice that support happiness. It's interesting to reflect on so many of the foundations of the practice that the Buddha offered instructions on that support waking up, to support that support waking up to see and know things as they are, also provide immediate support for happiness. So the practices of gratitude, of generosity, of sila or morality, cultivation of loving kindness, all support the waking up process. The Buddha identified as these as foundations for practice. Um, but also bring forth happiness. So just to say a little bit about these uh, factors. On gratitude, a quote from Maya Angelou. Let gratitude be the pillow upon which you kneel to say your nightly prayer. It's a beautiful quote on gratitude. When we open to gratitude, we have a sense of enoughness, kind of a sense of contentment. It supports a sense of connection to other beings, supports a, a deeper letting go, a deeper letting go to our present experience as it is. I was really feeling uh, gratitude during this sitting as I was um, reflecting on this center and the generosity of all those who supported the center and who continue to support this center and uh, feeling gratitude for having found the Dharma. So many things to be grateful for. I love to reflect, uh, I don't always do it by any means, um, but to take time to have the intention to reflect with gratitude before every meal. It's kind of an underlying intention, just to pause and acknowledge all of the beings involved in bringing the food that's in front of me on the table. Um, It's 
very powerful to reflect on all of the workers in the fields who plant the crops, grow the crops, harvest the crops. My partner grew up in the Central Valley and many of his um, relatives still sometimes do work in the fields. My partner was a packer, so now I, now I recognize the importance of packers who pack the grapes. Um, feel that direct connection. He did that when he was in uh, high school. And the truck drivers, people in the warehouses, the grocery stores. And then the miracle of like, this human connection and the miracle that very few of us in our lives ever go, really go hungry. A tremendous amount we have to be grateful for living in the Bay Area, living in this country, relative wealth compared to the rest of the world. I have uh, two favorite quotes on gratitude from two very wise beings. The first is from Piglet. Um, (laughs) Piglet noted that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. And this is a beautiful quote from Brother Steindel Rost. It is not happiness that makes us grateful. It is gratefulness that makes us happy. Every moment, a gift. So when we open to gratitude, we open to more and more moments of this happiness, of this joy. And very naturally, what comes forward is, is generosity. The Buddha offered teachings on generosity as a kind of the entree point for people coming into the practice. And uh, in my own practice, generosity has become more and more important as I recognize its foundational role, its role in purifying the heart, and as I open to the joy that comes forward when I practice generosity, and I'm watching for the impulse to give and then having the underlying intention to always act on that impulse. The Buddha said joy and the intention to give joy in the actual action of giving, whatever form it might take, and joy in the reflection afterwards. I always encourage folks to bring this into your practice, to reflect on that, to pause when you feel the impulse, acknowledge the joy you're feeling, maybe for the six of you who are doing the cleanup work here for 15 minutes, see if you don't feel joy. Maybe you feel joy now reflecting on that impulse that arose to offer time and support for the Sangha. And then after you leave the center, pause and reflect on whether there's joy that comes forward from your generosity and having given that time to support the group. So, uh, sila. Sila is often translated as morality. I really prefer the definition of harmony. So I think actions of words, speech, uh, thought, um, that are rooted in non-harming, rooted in caring for others, are ultimately rooted in a sense of harmony. Harmony with our own hearts, harmony with others, harmony with society. And I like this understanding that we're, in effect, harmonizing our hearts, harmonizing our practice to practice with sila. Now, the word morality can have a sense of... Um, just conforming to rules, but it's really not about conforming to rules. It's about supporting the purification of our own hearts. 
And the Buddha said there's a bliss, uh, it's happiness, the, the bliss of blamelessness that comes in practicing sila. And again, this is something that's come for in my own practice and maybe you've felt this in your own practice too, is a, the recognition that every single action has a consequence. Everything we do in the world has a consequence. And the more we see this, the more profoundly it impacts us to really commit to being in the world in a non-harming way. And we all make mistakes, especially around wise speech. It's especially challenging. We all make some mistakes. So that's the aliveness of, of practice, to catch the mistakes that have the underlying intention, to purify the heart, purify our actions. I may have mentioned this some years ago when I was here. This particular turning point in my practice was when I decided to really bring these qualities of the heart, gratitude, generosity, sila, intentions of kindness, compassion, into the whole of my life and into even my work life. I had uh, been practicing diligently before that, probably doing seven or eight weeks a year of retreats but not really practicing much in my rest of my life. And in 2007, after a long six-week retreat, I thought I just can't continue to, to work in the world. I really need to be devoting my whole life to the Dharma. But it wasn't in the cards. I had a partner still with and uh, very happy with that. Actually, I had a job that I liked, so I couldn't, I couldn't quit my job. And uh, wasn't in the cards to become a muck. And um, I decided I just needed to bring the whole of my practice to my life, including especially these qualities of kindness and compassion and sila. So that meant even bringing into the into my work life. Of course, that's what the teachers had been saying the whole time. <laughs> I hadn't missed it up until that point. And uh, it was transformative. It was transformative in bringing more happiness to my life. I think a lot more happiness for the people I worked with. (laughs) And deeply supporting the the deepening of practice overall. Um, So I started talking about kindness and compassion in the workplace. And uh, some of you may know my job... um, I left my job three years ago, but was uh, as airport director for SFO, so CEO of a very large organization. And I first started talking about kindness and compassion in the workplace. And it was a little bit of surprise from my staff, like, what, what are you doing? This is work. <laughs> but everybody wants to be connected to the heart. Everybody wants to be seen. And this is where we're seen most clearly is, is through the heart. So it was really uh, transformative for me to bring the practice in this way to the whole of my life. And um, yeah, a lot of gratitude for having that nine years where I was in my workplace and bringing the Dharma into the work. I couldn't quite say I'm bringing the Dharma into the work, but uh, I did slip in some yoga and meditation rooms into the airport during my tenure there. <laughs> so... With the happiness that comes forward when we practice gratitude, generosity, sila, loving kindness, it kind of becomes contagious, you know, just like when that stranger saw my happiness and reflected it back to me, I felt even happier. 
maybe in smiling now, you feel some happiness too. It's contagious. So it's a great practice to be able to express our happiness to others, to consciously recognize the happiness of others and maybe reflect it back to them and say, I see your happiness. I'm happy that you're happy. This is mudita. It's a beautiful practice, really getting the the multiplier effects. So a little bit more about each of the, uh, let's see, need to go a little faster. Okay, a little bit more on each of the three kinds of happiness. Happiness based on conditions of the world. Uh, Philip calls this uh, sukha dukkha. So happiness, but dukkha because it's ultimately unreliable. Um, and again, the Buddha didn't deny uh, this kind of happiness, but recognized its unsatisfactoriness. I think it's one of the things that first brought me into the practice, that you know, 20 years ago, coming into the practice, I had a, a good job I liked um, with my partner that I'm still with after 25 years. Um, but a sense of it's ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, there has to be something, kind of there has to be something more. But the ordinary way that most people experience the world is when, when they have things going away, if they're, say, their, their health is really good, then they attach their happiness to having perfect health. And they say, people can think, if I can only keep my perfect health, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Right? It doesn't work that way. <laughs> There's old age, sickness, and death. If I can only get my finances just where I want them to be, if my partner and my children would only behave just the way I want them to be, then I could be really happy. (laughs) doesn't work that way. (laughs) So there's kind of the endless stream of of suffering that this misunderstands, that, that thinks we can find ultimate lasting happiness in the material world but it isn't to be found in the material world. There is a happiness in the material world, but it, it isn't a deeper happiness that the Buddha is pointing to. And we can begin to let go and really enjoy more of these ordinary moments of happiness without a sense of clinging to them. Um, it's a great quote from another wise being, uh, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. <laughs> we can experience the joy of something but not cling to it. It's a great thing. It's a great thing with practice that we open to. The Buddha spoke about the vicissitudes of life, all of the ups and downs, praise and blame, gain and loss, and how we can attach to these. The gain and kind of woe is me with a loss and we just get swung around. I, I used to really experience this in my job. And uh, remember in the early years, um, right when I was starting my practice, we had a terrible time at the airport. 9-11 hit, and then United Airlines filed for its first bankruptcy. Some of you may remember the SARS epidemic in Asia. Uh, the airport lost 40% of our traffic, and our finances were devastated. Loss. Woe is me. <laughs> My other airport director friends around the country called me the job of airport directors. So. <laughs> um, but around 2003, things started to bounce back and kind of gain. Wow, oh, this is great. I was attaching to the gain. And uh, 
I came back from a five-day retreat, and there was an article in the Chronicle about the airport bouncing back. Ah, fame, great. <laughs> and there was even a picture of me on the paper, in the paper. <laughs> and that, that very same night, the airport duty manager called me at home and said, the taxi drivers are picketing. They've taken your photo, <laughs> blown it up, put it on their picket signs with a circle around it and a red slash mark. <laughs> Disrepute. <laughs> It's as if I got whacked over by the head by this fame and gain and loss. Okay, I'm not going to attach to this anymore. That's a very good lesson. So we learn to kind of be with the ups and downs, enjoy those good times, but not attach to them, and not be so devastated by the bad or difficult times either. So the second kind of happiness uh, comes with as we cultivate our practice of present awareness, mindfulness, develop a stronger concentration, happiness based on the attitude of the mind, on understanding. Philip calls this uh, anicca sukha, so impermanent happiness. It's a happiness, but we recognize that it's impermanent. We're not confused. We recognize how little control we actually have over the unfolding moment. From Sharon Salzberg, in those moments when we realize how much we cannot control, we can learn to let go. And from Edith Wharton, if only we'd stop trying to be happy, we could have a pretty good time. A little way, I, you know, an example of how I practice with this. It's because it, it is a, a very alive practice. This is kind of the alive practice point. Um, I was with a friend for her 65th birthday dinner, and we went to a very nice restaurant. A group of friends, very expensive too. And uh, so I had, I kind of came in with the expectation, the warning signal, expectation of having very good meal and very good service. We sat down, we waited 15 minutes, no server came around. The friends I was were with just were having a good time in conversation. They didn't seem to notice. But my mind was caught in clinging, like paying a lot of money. They should provide better service. And, and finally, a moment of waking up. Oh, I do have this practice. And what's going on? I'm suffering, I'm clinging. And kind of a letting go, returning to the conversation, and there it came back again. It's, you know, it was kind of like a, I compare it sometimes to being like a bouncing basketball. It has to bounce five or six times before it comes to a stop. <laughs> Eventually the clinging came to a stop and I could return to being present with my friends. So that, kind of the aliveness of practice. Just driving into Redwood City today, I saw a sign that said, uh, traffic tickets available ahead. So I'm kind of imagining a, a sign on the road right, right here that says, peace and happiness available right now. <laughs> if we only stop clinging, if we only stop wanting and needing things to be different, peace is possible in any moment. So with this second stage of happiness, we begin to see kind of the, the choice point. We see what leads to suffering 
and what leads to happiness. If we cling to any part of our experience, want to make it permanent, want to push it away, there's suffering. If we open up, accept the present circumstance as it is, with a sense of balance, with an ease, supports a letting go of the sense of self, opens the understanding of the impermanence of the changing nature of our experience, opens to the possibility of peace in any moment. It supports a deeper understanding. We begin to see the ephemeral nature of every part of our experience. Nothing we know and love of this world that we can hang on to for lasting happiness. So we begin to see that the letting go itself is what leads to the greatest happiness. Quote from Ajahn Chah, Try and be mindful. Let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still. Problems will arise and you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So equanimity also really becomes, begins to come forward with the understanding, that the deeper understanding that recognizes it's like this. This quality of um, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi calls there in the middleness, kind of where we're right in the middle of everything with a sense of balance and acceptance. Um, I think I just have time to tell a story. When we, when we open to equanimity and equanimity comes forward, I think we all have equanimity arising in our lives. That we couldn't be in the world and live with sickness and the death of loved ones if we weren't able to bring in a quality of equanimity that holds things in balance accepts things as they are, even even as we experience grief. Just to touch on this, when my experience of um, as airport director in 2013, we had the Asiana crash. And uh, it was very powerful, powerful benefit of my practice to see equanimity very naturally arise in, in that crisis and feeling a sense of peace right in the middle of the shock of learning about the crash. And, uh, and I felt very calm, actually, changing from my garden clothes to different clothes to go into uh, work to respond to the emergency. I wasn't panicked. And um, it has this equanimity has a heart quality. So I felt the real quivering of the heart of you know, tears as I drove down to the airport and saw all of the ambulances going to San Francisco General. And I felt an even greater peace as I arrived at the airport emergency operations center. And it was so moving to see everybody doing the best they could. I think we're always doing the best we can. It was so clear with a balance of equanimity, everyone there doing the best they could to save lives. Um, very grateful for the practice that I could be feel that support. I remember too, uh, walking in front of the cameras and maybe two hours later, we had a press conference and didn't know how many people had died or were seriously injured. And uh, there were 65 TV cameras I didn't even know there were 65 TV cameras in the Bay Area. Uh, probably 120 reporters. And 
I felt a little nervous at first and recognized how little I knew that I really would have to say, I don't know. And uh, in a moment, from the place of equanimity, I could look through the cameras and see millions of people kind of on the other ends of those camera cameras who'd seen news stories around the world and knowing that tens of millions of people were naturally wishing well. Kind of a natural wish for kindness, compassion coming forward. And in that moment, I felt safe. I felt safe that I could be vulnerable and acknowledge what I didn't know, kind of let, let my heart be seen too. So it inspires kind of my own practice in daily life to cultivate equanimity in every moment of the life of my life and recognize the, um, the clarity, the clarity, the groundedness that comes forward as we cultivate equanimity. Kind of acceptance is the first step toward a deeper equanimity. So the third kind of happiness, happiness entirely free of any condition of the world, the happiness of the Buddha. The ultimate direction of the practice with a cessation of suffering. The third noble truth, that peace is possible. From Thich Nhat Hanh, letting go gives us freedom and freedom is the only condition of our happiness, for our happiness. If in our, if in our heart we still cling to anything, anger, anxiety, or possessions, we cannot be free. So that really he's pointing directly the way toward freedom, to non-clinging. Um, and there is this unshakable peace, the deepest level that can be open to with practice, but we do open to any moment, any moment we can experience peace, this peace, when there's non-clinging. And I always encourage folks to um, appreciate those moments. I think we, we so often miss them. It might be a moment in nature, maybe watching a sunset. You know, kind of when we're watching a sunset, a beautiful sunset, we know we can't hang on to it, so there's no hanging on. Maybe, maybe there's no thought in that moment seeing the beauty, no thoughts of the past, no thoughts of the future, kind of the mind at peace. There might be a moment of freedom right there. Maybe it's just a, a time with loved ones. Sometimes I've experienced moments of like, like that watching uh, modern dance, just everything, everything else seeming to drop away. So those are, are moments of freedom that uh, we should appreciate because they do support the practice overall and the, and the going toward the deeper, unshakable kind of happiness that um, can arise with the deepest level, at the deepest level of practice. So perhaps this framework is helpful for your practice, these three kinds of happiness, and encourage you to really recognize appreciate the happiness that arises in your practice, to, to share your happiness and celebrate the happiness of others. And uh, to close with a quote, I think I finally gotten the pronunciation on this right, but Salva, you can tell me if I got it wrong. Goyam Apollinaire? No, Goyam Apollinaire. Apollinaire, oh, thank you. <laughs> now and then, now and then, it's good to pause with our pursuit of happiness and just be happy. <laughs> so, 
thank you for your attention and uh, we should probably just end maybe to end with a close our eyes for a moment to offer the merit of our practice merit of our time together to be for the benefit of all beings and may our practice may our presence in the world be for the benefit of all beings without exception. May it be so.